0: We could do do something in the edit to make it sound like there are way more girls in the audience. (laughs) Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Classical Music Pod Live. From the basement of Louis Louis, South London's Art Deco
1: Mecca. Today we've got for you an experimental deep dive into the musicology of Die Hard. The first time we've dissected a film score. And hopefully not the last time we record live. No pressure, audience, but it's on you to make this work. Feel free to be audibly receptive.
0: <laughs> oh boy. <clears throat> we've prepared some prompts, printed at the taxpayer's expense somewhere near Oxford Circus, but don't hold back on your whooping, clapping pantomime exclamations. All are actively encouraged.
1: Oh yes they are. Oh
2: no they're not.
1: (laughs)
0: Today we're going to be explaining why the nineteen eighty-eight blockbuster Die Hard is a paradigm shifting film that relies heavily on its soundtrack to rewrite the cinematic milieu of the day. Lovely. Did I say that
1: right? You did lovely use of milieu. But before all that, let's talk about Frank Sinatra.
0: But what the hell Okay, so the first thing to know about Frank Sinatra is that he was originally
1: cast to be the star of Die Hard. I know, right? Die Hard is an adaptation of the novel Nothing Lasts Forever, written by Roderick Thorpe, this pod's second favourite Roderick. Can anyone guess our number one Rod? Roddy Williams! Yes, well done, Tim. Have a gold star. Roderick Thorpe's Nothing Lasts Forever was planned as a sequel to the 1968 film The Detective Which had starred the man with the golden pipes and Vegas residency, Frank Sinatra
0: Sensibly, Frank turned down the opportunity to star in Die Hard He was 73 by this point and had no need to go crawling through air vents
1: As a result, they had to rewrite their leading man In so doing, they reinvented what Hollywood thought of as heroic for the next 30 years. And now for anyone who hasn't
0: seen the defining film of the past 50 years, let's catch you up on the
1: plot. Shall we do it through the medium of an Irish folk song?
0: Yes. Yes, yeah, I think we should, yeah.
1: About a film, I'll sing a song, oh yippee yay this is the plot of Die Hard One, I'll tell you all and it won't take long, and it would help if you sing along, sing yippee-ki, yay sing yay High-rise tower on a winter's night. Sing yipikay yay A Christmas party was in full swing when German terrorists came knocking. The cash in the vault was the aim of their sting. But, but. they had not banked on Cop John McLean. McLean, they, had, they not had not banked on John McLean.
0: Germans were led by a nasty man, singing Yippee Ki Yay. His surname was Gruber, his first name was Hans. He wasn't afraid to get blood on his hands, but neither was John, and he scuppered their plans, singing Yippee Ki Yay, Yay, singing
1: Yippee Ki Yay. Escaped from the hostage room. He sing yippee ki yippee He hid in a shaft and he blew up the crew. With help from the LAPD guy he knew, he saved his wife from the clutches of Guru. Singing yippee kaye Singin
2: yippee kaye. Singing yippee kaye yippee yay
0: So, just in case people haven't totally discerned the intricacies
1: of the plot from that, perhaps you could give them a quick summary, Sam. Set on Christmas Eve in Los Angeles, a New York policeman, John McLean, has traveled to meet his estranged wife, Holly. Bonnie Bedelia. At her Christmas party. Upon arriving at the new Nakatomi Plaza building, McLean is confused by his wife reverting to her maiden name of Gennaro and is portrayed as. Out of his comfort zone amidst corporate luxury. As McLean is changing clothes, European terrorists led by the enigmatic Hans Gruber... Alan Rickman... ...storm the building. Hans's sidekicks include American computer specialist Theo... Clarence Gilliard Jr. And his enforcer, Carl... Alexander Godenov. Their plan is to steal $640 million from the Nakatomi Vault... Theo explains to Hans that he can only hack through the first six of seven security barriers protecting the vault. But Hans' plan involves utilising the predictability of the FBI whose two idiotic, gun-toting representatives are both called Agent Johnson. Ha-ha. The FBI cut power to the building and in so doing opened the vault's electromagnetic lock, allowing Gruber access. McLean, the sole, unanticipated attendee of the party, remains elusive and attempts to derail Gruber's plans with a series of traps and daring deeds. Die Hard was released in 1988. It was directed by John McTiernan and produced by Joel Silver. The film grossed over $80 million and received positive reviews from critics. Let's talk about the
0: music. The film's composer was Michael Kamen. How
1: is that spelt?
2: It's
0: spelt K. Kamen.
1: Very nice. Very. Everybody (laughs) moves his hand. It's very, very nice. He's famous for a few things, but underrated for his outrageous head of hair. Fierce mane. Shall we learn a bit more about him? Let's! Michael Kamen.
0: Born, New York,
1: 1958. His activist parents encouraged him to listen to protest songs alongside a steady diet of classical music. He studied oboe at Juilliard. Between the ages of 20 and 24, he released five albums with his rock classical fusion band... New York Rock and Roll Ensemble.
0: Leonard Bernstein invited the group to appear at one of his young people's concerts.
1: After the band split, he was invited to write a score for the New York-based Harkness Ballet. David Bowie attended the premiere. In
0: 1992, he was nominated for an Oscar after co-writing Everything I Do, I Do It For You with Brian Adams.
1: He was musical director for the Queen's Golden Jubilee celebrations at Buckingham Palace. In
0: 1997, he established the Mr. Holland's Opus Foundation, which raises money to supply musical instruments to children.
1: He died of a heart attack in
2: 2003.
0: He once said...
1: Music has a great capability to heal and a responsibility to heal. It's not just to make people rich. Outrageously, Cayman never won an Oscar. Not even for Die Hard. Not even. The 1988 Oscar for Best Score was won by Ryuichi Sakamoto and David Byrne for The Last Emperor. And in fact, one of the reasons the Die Hard score is so good is also the reason it didn't qualify for the Oscars. He uses a scoring technique called... Collage. Collage?
0: Collage. Collage. (laughs) 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 Collage. We don't have a (laughs) cue card. I haven't got a cue card for collage. (laughs) So, Cayman built this score out of pre-existing
1: motifs written
0: by other composers.
1: Yeah, you can see it as sort of a hangover from Stanley Kubrick's films. Traditionally, film composers might get a steer from a director on what kind of music they'd like under a certain scene. A rough cut would arrive with a temporary or temp track to accompany. With some composers, you can hear the influence of the temp track more than others. Shall we hear a couple more examples of composers who
0: basically rewrote the temp track? Oh, yes. 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 Right. All right. You got to pick up on it. two.
1: Benjamin Britten's Sanctus from the War Requiem, first performed in 1962. James Horner's soundtrack to the film Troy, released in 2004.
0: Got to pick up
1: on or two. These temp tracks have been in use for as long as people have been writing fixed film scores.
0: But then Stanley Kubrick comes along and rejects the composer's soundtrack for 2001 A Space Odyssey and instead keeps the temp track. Hence the very famous use of. Tim
2: Tim
1: Or Alzo Sprach Zarathustra by Richard Strauss. Kubrick was then able to appropriate the cultural significance and baggage of these pre-existing works, playing them off against his own on-screen image. Alzo Sprach, a piece famously about the ascent of man, accompanies an image of a space shuttle, influencing how we view that shuttle as the final ascent of man. So Cayman goes one step further... He wants the cultural baggage
0: of the themes and melodies, but he also wants to be able to manipulate it to reflect the action on screen more specifically in Die Hard.
1: The result is the kind of collage score that we find in Die Hard. It's sort of Wagner opera, but with other composers' motifs. The Oscars only hand out an
0: award for best original score and ruled that because the themes were pre-existing, Cayman's work was impermissible. Other composers to fall foul of this loophole include Radiohead's guitarist, Johnny Greenwood, whose soundtrack to There Will Be Blood
1: was also left unnominated. I bet we're all dying to know which themes Cayman selected. But are we dying hard? At this point in the evening, I'd like to record three members of our audience doing their best impression of a West German villain dying hard. Uh, You're going to have to come, come up near a microphone. And uh, do your best impression of someone dying hard. Dom, Dom you want to do this? Yeah, I'd love. I'd love. Yeah, to yeah do Dom, Dom wants case. to do it. You guys got a couple of takes. We've got of one take.
0: We yeah. one take. I don't know how this is going to come out. Bring it. Bring it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really nice. really nice. Does <clears throat> anyone else want to come and do a dying impression? James. James, James oh, wants oh, to do. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah.
2: Gorgeous. Yeah, now
0: they're okay. here. We go. How over the top do you want this? As much as very. Oh yeah. Japanese. yeah. <laughs> Does anybody else want to die hard, or are we done with dying? All right. Thanks for that. It sounds like at least two of us are dying
1: hard to know what these themes are. John McClane's helpful sidekick, Sergeant Al Powell, is accompanied with this music. it snow it's being played by jacob swindells on the piano uh, thank
0: yeah. you, yeah. uh, to support on-screen appearances of the henchman and tech whiz theo we get singing in the rain Ascribed to our villain, Hans Gruber, is this theme... You. So, Holly Gennaro, the surname swapping, I've gone back to my maiden name because my marriage is on the rocks, wife of John McLean doesn't get a theme of her own and instead gets what film theorist Claudia Gorbman would call a woman on screen musical halo of strings. Because basically, whenever she's on screen, there's a hum of strings. Uh, big thanks to the male gaze for that one.
1: And this is where Cayman starts getting really clever. Who? Cayman!
0: So despite knowing that Michael Cayman wrote the film's score, the impression we get when watching Die Hard is that Alan Rickman's character, Hans Gruber, is the one really controlling the soundtrack. Nifty. We first hear orchestral underscoring alongside images of the other baddies in the truck, Prior to their arrival, all the music has been diegetic.
1: Now, Tim, diegetic isn't anything to do with diehard, is it? No, diegetic
0: music is inside the screen. Non-diegetic music is outside the screen. Think Star Wars, the cantina band. Thank you. So they are inside the screen visible and part of the universe, but the underscore is non-diegetic music.
1: Before Gruber turns up, we've just had music from inside the on-screen world.
0: So when John McLean arrives at his estranged wife's Christmas party, the on-screen string quartet have been playing that bit of Brandenburg 3, but just as Hans approaches, the quartet foreshadow his arrival with a bit of the Ode to Joy. <laughs> Where? There we go, right yeah. <clears>
1: there. <throat> Jacob doing a really good job on the rather honky-tonk piano here at Louis Louis. Against this bit of music, the underscore kicks in with an augmented version of the ode, creeping up and building tension. Little flashes of singing in the rain are heard as well. Gruber brings the soundtrack with him and then controls it once he's arrived. During his soliloquy, in which the party guests slash hostages hear his plan, Gruber practically conducts the soundtrack, which accompanies him as though in a recitative. He's even holding his notebook like a Bible. To me, it looks and sounds a lot like an evangelist in a bark passion. Obviously, we
0: can't play a clip, so let's see if we can recreate it here.
1: Tim, you're going to be our Gruber. I've heard the key to doing a good Alan Rickman impression is to keep your front teeth clenched and your lips trumpeted at all time. Jacob, you're going to be playing the underscore, and the crowd here are going to be the frightened Nakatomi employees, all the more intimidated by the fact he has magical control of the music. <laughs> Hans lifts his left hand. Hans lifts his right hand. Ladies and gentlemen...
0: Ladies and <laughs> gentlemen, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Germans. due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they are about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. Now, where is Mr. Tagaki? Joseph Yoshinobu Tragi, born Kyoto, 1937, <laughs> family immigrated to San Pedro, California, 1939, interned, manager, 1942-43, scholarship student, University of California, 1955, Law Degree Stanford nineteen sixty two MBA Harvard nineteen seventy President Nakatomi Trading Vice Chairman Nakatomi Investment Group Enough and Father of Five
1: I am Takagi How do you do
0: it's a pleasure to meet you <laughs> oh, we got a heck impressive, up. right? Well, what's even more impressive is the soundtrack in the scene where Gruber's plan culminates. As the FBI turn up and open the vault's final lock for our villain, Hans gets full-on hero music. A sort of Turkish march version of the ode comes in just as he gets to swish his hair.
1: Watching this moment in the film, and certainly watching this splendid sight right here, it makes me think of Augenblick. (laughs) Augenblick? You know, Augenblick. The moment. Literally the blinking of an eye. When we become aware we are part of something greater than just ourselves, whether that is sitting in an orchestra, helping record a podcast, or the heroic narrative of Hans Gruber. Unusually for a villain... Gruber gets his augenblick, his hero moment. The audience are led to feel supportive of this charismatic fella, and Beethoven's rhythmically dynamic hymn to Brotherhood certainly helps. But Beethoven has other associations that Kamen wanted to draw on as well. Oh, really?
0: This isn't just uplifting orchestral music. It's a symbol of high European art, elitism and sophistication. If your villain is a Plutarch-quoting Savile rose-suited British Shakespearean actor, make sure you use some Ludwig van to accompany him. This isn't just a villain. This is Michael Kamen's Beethoven-boosted
1: Hans Gruber. Thanks to the villain-controlled underscore, the impression we get is of Gruber as an Ubermensch, an untouchably intelligent metropolitan elite evil dandy who is happy to reference Alexander the Great before blowing people's heads off. To call upon the rhetoric of disagreeable Canadian Jordan Peterson... Gruber is the alpha character of this story. Which is why he gets the best theme tune. Absolutely. He's also the protagonist. This film is his plan. That's why he is built up as high as can be. So even his sidekick then gets the theme from Singing in the Rain
0: because Kamen wanted to liken Gruber and his accomplices to the Droogs in A Clockwork Orange who sing that same song whilst committing a traumatic assault. But what about our hero, Bruce Willis in a vest, John McLean.
1: Would you like to hear the theme Came and Gives McLean? McClane... Yeah! Is this a John Cage quotation? Well, Timbo. It's just silence. A hero with no theme. A hero with no theme. John McClane has so little backup, even the soundtrack doesn't support him. So the odds are really stacked against him. He's a humble New
0: York street cop battling alone against a team of highly organised, super smart Terrorists. Right.
1: and that's how this film reinvents the political paradigm for the next thirty years. But more on that in a second. First of all, we need to know John McClane's got no theme. He's got no shoes. He's got no shirt, and is the beta character to Gruber's alpha.
0: When at one point the two of them talk on handheld radios. Gruber calls McLean a cowboy. He asks if he's just another kid who grew up watching too many John Wayne films. He does. But then McLean says he always preferred Roy
1: Rogers. So what's all that about? That's him basically saying, oh, you're calling me stupid blue-collar cowboy. I'm actually even more beta. I love the kitsch Saturday morning kid show cowboy called Roy Rogers, who wears a glittery shirt and sings a ballad at the end of each show. Hence... John McClane shouting, yippee-ki-yay, melon farmer. It was Roy Rogers' catchphrase originally. But we are getting the idea that John McClane has a challenge on his hands. The scale of his task is made clear. He's low culture, a divorcee street cop with only a kid's TV glittery cowboy in his corner, up against the might of international terrorists with Beethoven for backup. So how is this political? I don't know if people are ready to talk politics, Tim. It's all a little raw. Let's take a quick poll. Are we ready to hear about
0: politics again, provided it's filtered through a 1980s action film?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds pretty evenly split to me. Don't be silly.
0: That was an overwhelming mandate. At least 5248. Please respect the will of the people.
1: Drop it,
2: it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it.
1: Oh, John. Well, before John, before Tony, before another John, and alongside Margaret... There was Ronald.
0: Ronald Reagan, the 40th President of the United States, former governor of California who made his name as an actor playing corny, glittery, shirted cowboys. That Ronald,
1: exactly. And what's he got to do with John McLean? Well, much like McLean, Reagan and Reaganism champions the little man. He got elected on the mandate that the state isn't the answer. The state is the problem, or to translate to diehard: If terrorists attack, it's not the FBI or police chief who can respond best. It's that humble hero in a tower. It sounds suspiciously like the Govism, we've had enough of experts. Well, there are other parallels too. The family unit is fretted over with Holly's surname change, representing the threat career women posed to the fabric of American society, and fear of foreigners is certainly a subtext in Die Hard. Gruber comes from explicitly West Germany, an economic rival to the States at the time, and Takagi jokes that the Japanese-based Nakatomi Corporation is trying to conquer the US with electronic devices because Pearl Harbour failed.
0: So a good old American hero has to save the
1: day. A cowboy. A lone ranger. Our beta character John McClane starts out as just a regular cop, but becomes practically a superhero. To get Malvolian... Greatness is thrust upon him. But isn't that just the standard heroic narrative, Sam? I feel like I've seen that in everything from Kung Fu Panda to The Matrix, to Home Alone to Johnny English. You're absolutely right, Tim. It's become the norm. But before this, look at the action heroes of the late 70s and 80s. You might be familiar with the muscle-bound bodies of Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger.
0: They act as a model for my own.
1: Well, typically... These two flesh sacks, alongside others like Carl Withers and Jean-Claude Van Damme, played characters who start the film as the greatest commando barbarian space ranger the universe has ever seen. A threat is identified, and they go off on their horse, helicopter, space rocket, and defeat the baddie. They drive the narrative as well as the horse. They control the soundtrack, and they start as alphas, and they end as alphas. Whereas McLean starts off beta and becomes alpha. It's more of a journey. Some are born great. Some have terrorists turn up at their Christmas party driving the narrative in a truck. Some have to become great in a sweaty air vent to save the day. If we can all become great, we don't need to rely on the state. Bingo. Rhyming
2: Reaganism. Did somebody say Reaganism? Interview,
0: interview, 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 interview,
2: interview. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm proud to introduce
0: to you the human embodiment of Reaganism.
2: Good evening. Real pleasure to be here with you.
0: Just to be clear, the views you're expressing tonight are those of the neoliberal political philosophy, as originally espoused by, amongst others, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher.
2: Absolutely correct. Certainly
0: not those of Jamie Seymour, actor, writer, and all-round handsome man about town. Never heard of it. No, neither have I. So, Mr. Reaganism, what do you make of Reagan's inauguration speech, where he said that the state is the source of people's problems, not the solution? Uh, Yeah,
2: the state schmate.
0: Are you suspicious of foreigners, then?
2: Of course. Aren't we all? It's the U.S. Us, not them. If we could only aggrig some sort of structure along our borders... I don't know, like uh, a wall? And presumably, this extends to Hans Gruber. Oh, certainly. Don't like any namby-pamby high art bullshit. Europhilic classical music is all snobbish. It's downright antithetical to good old boys like Roy Rogers and John McClane. And yet...
0: John McClane rises up to overcome Gruber. Is this not a hopeful message, then, that actually it might not be the specifically trained FBI or police chiefs who are best suited to saving us, saying that actually we're all special is rather a nice thing?
2: Well, it's uh, it's the least we could do. What do you mean? Well, if you're about to uh, decollectivise, by by that I mean dupe a nation. So sell off industries that their taxpayers have built up and convince people to abandon their fellow workers, it's the least you could do. If you're about to heap the uh, responsibilities of solving climate issues, civil order, and public health onto the individual, rather forcing government or large corporations to uh, tackle those issues, the least you could do is tell people that they are special. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, now you you see. That's how you end up with everyone trying to do something completely mad, like become vegan, when all that carbon reduction would be undone and outweighed by opening another airport runway. The decisions to be made and now the responsibility of the very special individual not the state. We've managed to convince people that if climate isn't improving, it's because they are as individuals not trying hard enough. They have to become more heroic. Yes, we're happy to use Beethoven's hymn to Brotherhood in the undermining of these uh, collective identities.
1: Die Hard reinvents the narrative arc for action films. Rather than an alpha hero proactively setting off on a quest to destroy evil, a put-upon beta figure is thrust accidentally into a situation where development is required of them to defeat a powerful villain. Bruce Willis in his socks hadn't planned on fighting Alan Rickman on Christmas Eve, but seeing as he's here, Bruce had better save the day. So the broader context of Reaganism
0: supports this narrative by praising the role of the little man on the ground
1: economic rivals japan and west germany are touted as threats to american success whilst the breakdown of the nuclear family unit is what causes john McLean to be in trouble in the first place if only He'd been coming home to a warm supper in New York City
0: instead. So Michael Kamen's score accentuates each of these points and is complicit in the conspiracy by giving Hans Gruber, the greatest of villains, apparent control of the soundtrack and the most significance-laden, inspiring thematic
1: material in Western art music. Bonus point! The film's soundtrack not only arrives with Gruber, it dies with him. From the moment Hans dies, falling from the roof and reuniting the family unit of Holly and John, the entire rest of the film's soundtrack is made up of tracks lifted directly, wholesale, unedited, from other films. John Scott's 1987 score for the film Man of Fire and a slice of James Horner's Aliens soundtrack. Trivia! So by building Gruber into a
0: supervillain, not only does Kamen help create Alan Rickman's second most iconic Christmas film character, he helps drive the regressive conservative subtext of the film, that the state is flawed and anyone can be a hero.
1: This narrative, which is romantic and exciting, goes on to pop up everywhere throughout culture over the next 30 years, permeating the subconscious of each of us and driving the idea that we are all special. We all deserve our voices to be heard in some kind of
0: self-recorded broadcast medium.
1: (laughs) Michael Kamen may be directly responsible for this podcast in more ways than one, but he may also have contributed to the demise of effective collective action by the state. Yeah, so should we finish on a song? I think so, but first a couple of thank yous. A big thank you
0: to Louis Louis uh, for having us at such short notice.
1: A great big thank you to Jacob Swendells on the piano! And for Jamie Moore for gamely playing an abstract concept. Yeah. And,
2: <laughs> Very good.
0: and there's a huge debt owed to Dr. Robin Stilwell for her article, I Just Put a Drone Under Him, which inspired a lot of tonight's musicological connections.
1: And, of course, a great big Christmas thank you to all the listeners, especially those of you who have come out on a cold night to support us. Yay! a film, I'll sing a song. Oh, yippee-ki, yay This is the plot of Die Hard 1. I'll tell you all and it won't take long. And it would help if you sing along. Singing yippee-ki, yippee-ki-yay. Kai-yay. Singing yippee yippee yippee-ki-yay.